0: I share her love of being scantily clad.
1: I think I've just found a new line of work for myself.
0: <laughs> it's it's not savory.
1: Oh, there'll be a gift shop. <laughs>
0: Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that surprised you even know who Thetabara is. I'm Kelly Anakin. And
1: I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. Steady on, sir. The ladies have had enough shocks for one day.
0: How many ladies you got in here?
1: Uh, none. Hmm.
0: Well, hmm. I know what I'm doing when we get done with this. <laughs>
1: We do have two new countries to report this week, both fairly close to each other, Trinidad and Tobago, and the British Virgin Islands. All
0: right. Yeah. We're very popular in exotic locations. Yeah. I think maybe perhaps some of our listeners are simply taking exciting trips and downloading the podcast while they're there.
1: Yes. And if so, please tell us.
0: Yes. And if not, and you're a Trinidad and Tobago native, we would also be curious to hear about that. Yeah.
1: How's life in TNT?
0: T? <laughs> Just a brief reminder the survey is still live for you to vote on what we covered during the hiatus between the end of series two of Downton Abbey, which is approaching That's very right. quickly. Right now, it looks like Gosford Park, a standalone Tom Repeats History Fashion Backwards episode, and also Julian Fellow's Titanic are in the lead. Okay. So, uh, but we've also got a strong showing for uh, Manor House, the PBS series, the reality show, and also the the uh, James Cameron Titanic oh. uh, in 3D. Oh. So we will try to record our podcast on that subject in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, just a, a brief housekeeping note. I am pleased to announce that I did finally go ahead and bite the bullet, and I purchased a copy of Black Edwardians. Hooray! Yes, I couldn't find it in the library or anywhere, so I said, hey. It's money well spent. That's right. Uh, So, yeah, we will be doing a a segment on black people during the Edwardian era and what they were getting up to and how they handled corsets, I'm sure. All right. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't dived into it yet, but uh, I imagine it's going to be really, really interesting.
1: Okay. So let's read some telegrams. We have a
0: lot of telegrams this week. We do. We have a backlog That's from, right. from not doing the last week. So yeah. everybody hunker down. <laughs> get, your, get your tea bags brewing, because we're going to be here for a minute. Yep.
1: Limber up your Morse code. Our first one from First Cousin Matt. He says, Dear Kelly and Tom, ahoy hoy from your very first cousin of the week, Matt. I've been meaning to dash off this telegraph for some time. That said, it's taken some thinking on how to word it, for while your podcast is about equal parts critical analysis and good fun, I wanted to make sure that my earnest theory struck the right tone. Here goes. I think that you are wrong to say that Mary has a killer vagina, as I don't think it was her vagina that did it. To put it delicately, I think that Pamuk and Mary engaged in what the Turks would call, according to Google Translate, anus sex,
0: spelled S E K S. That's
1: yes. That's right. I propose that twas sodomy that killed the beast or at the very least he was engaged in said sodomy at the time of his demise. Poppycock you say? No, but I wish I had. <laughs> Behold the following clues. Clue the first. Pamuk says, "I don't think our union would please your family or mine." Taken at face value, this clue simply refers to them being intimate. Yet read on. Clue the second. Mary asks if it is safe, meaning how can we prevent pregnancy? Pamuk responds, "Trust me." Is that because he's, well, you know, clue the third. Pamuk says, "You can still be a virgin for your husband." This clue is, to my mind, rather self-explanatory and is rather the linchpin of the whole thing. In closing, well, there you go. My grand theory revealed. Thanks for a great podcast, First Cousin Matt. Not to be confused with cousin Matthew of show fame, though I like to think we've got similar hair. I would
0: like to see that hair. Yeah, because Matthew, say what you will, has great hair. It's true. Uh, no, this is interesting because we actually received this before the previous podcast went live, and of right. course we discussed this very theory. Yes, and uh, as we discussed on that podcast, it's very hotly contested. I mean, I think there's a certain amount of a certain amount of probability that this is what went down. Yeah, and if that's true, a good chunk of the reason why it is so vague yeah. what actually happened. Because this is not... Um, yeah. It's it's not savory.
1: Right. Uh, well, and this is, you know, Downton Abbey, not, I don't know, The Sopranos. Hotel or- Babylon. <laughs> that's right. Hotel Babylon.
0: Uh, no. Well, and, and, you know, I also question if there's sort of a weird stereotype at work here where it's like, oh, you know, this foreigner with Uh his weird practices which seems like a little bit of white panic on mr Fellows' part perhaps if this is all true yeah you know that's the darkest timeline so
1: (laughs) (laughs) the skills he learned in some turkish seraglio
0: is that how you pronounce that? I have no idea. Yeah, me neither. So if you know how to pronounce Seraglio, <laughs> please let us know. Uh, yeah, and you know, uh, I did write back to cousin Matt saying that I thought the theory was very sound. However, killer vagina just has a way nicer ring to it, it, it than killer other parts of the anatomy. Right. So uh, but thank you. So uh, Yeah. Let us know if you've got thoughts. That's oh, he has a he has a postscript.
1: that's right, he does. He adds PS Fun fact, my opening greeting of ahoy, ahoy was what Thomas Edison proposed to be the greeting when one picked up the telephone. It clearly didn't catch on, though it is the reason why Mr. Burns says that same phrase on The Simpsons, pity. It would have been great to have Carson pick up his phone and blubber, ahoy, ahoy.
0: (laughs) Agreed. And uh, we frequently say ahoy, ahoy to each other around the house. More... (laughs) More than is prudent, I
1: think. (laughs) Yes.
0: So next up, we actually have two telegrams from Cousin Phoenix. She says, hello, my dear cousins. Stop. I have to say that if Kelly were to attend Whore Mountain, stop. I say pictures should be taken because we all would love to see that attraction. Stop. Signed, your ever faithful Cousin Phoenix. First of all, props on the telegram Etiquette. Yeah. That was very, very cool. Yeah, and also I believe that the attraction was whore mansion.
1: I think that is whore correct. mansion. I'm yes. much.
0: Cl- I don't do my whoring on mountainsides Thank no, you very much. That
1: is. You'll just. You know. You'll catch your death of cold.
0: Exactly. So if uh, if this ever comes to pass, <laughs> we will try and make sure photographic evidence is uh, is procured. Oh,
1: there'll be a gift shop. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Her second telegram says, My dear cousin, sorry for the double telegram, but I have to say you weren't the only ones crying for the death of William. I have to be Team Daisy this week because even though she liked William, I don't think she really loved him, and that's why she felt so bad about agreeing to marry him and be engaged to him in the first place. I know I would be feeling the same as she was, even though I'm a cold-hearted, cynical bitch. I have to come in on defense of her wedding clothes, too. While I agree the foofing doesn't look all that good on her, I thought the ringlet curls looked good. And I still always have to be Team Matthew as well, but that's for different reasons.
1: Well, it's the hair, as we discussed. Yeah, the yeah. hair.
0: Can't wait till the ceasefire of McGee is over. She annoys the living hell out of me this whole bloody series. Affectionately yours, Dame Phoenix. Yup, I'm a dame now. Wow. I know.
1: No. Yeah. Area,
0: uh, what a, what an uppity minx! <laughs> <laughs>
1: Indeed. No, and
0: uh, thank you uh, as always for writing, yeah. Dame Phoenix. And I agree that the hair looked pretty good on Daisy. Okay, I think you know, just in general, it's weird because she's the only character we don't ever see right in in plain clothes very yeah, often. Yeah, I mean, to an
1: extent, it was just jarring.
0: Yeah, because I mean, Missus Hughes has several different dresses that she wears. I've yeah. noticed, and, yeah. and it's just bizarre.
1: Yeah. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Elizabeth. She says, Hello there. I thoroughly enjoy listening to Up Yours Downstairs, and my Monday morning commute would not be the same without Kelly and Tom's awesome commentary on Downton. Up Yours is quite possibly the best podcast I listen to and certainly trumps all other Downton casts. I must say, I was disappointed to hear you speak so disparagingly about Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, however. As a Canadian and a historian, I can assure you that they are in fact a real and very important regiment, both in the past and present. They have been awarded several different battle honors, as well as having members awarded the Victoria Cross. Also, Princess Patricia of Connaught was indeed a real person as well, being one of Queen Victoria's granddaughters. Your slightly crushed Canadian cousin, Elizabeth.
0: Well, I hope you're not terribly crushed, Elizabeth. Right. Because I, I don't think we intended to be disparaging.
1: Right. Well, what I will say is, first of all, the both of us love Canada. Oh. I I proposed marriage in Toronto.
0: It's true. And, he did.
1: Kelly accepted. Yes. There's very little drama about Spoilers. it. Spoilers. Yeah. But we, we love Canada. But I think Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry is like so many things about Canada it is meritorious and worthwhile and good and silly-sounding. Yes, like and, Poutine. Yeah. Or, you know, the Mounties or, you know, anything. It's just this thing that can, that Canada has where... It, Nothing bad to say about it. It just sounds a little silly somehow. Well,
0: and they're very earnest. Yeah, I think, and I yeah. think in America it's hard for us to understand how you can be earnest about something. Yeah, but you know, I'm actually now curious to learn more about Princess Patricia and also the regiment. Yeah, uh, so maybe we'll come back to that in our in our well, repeat history episode. Yeah,
1: maybe so. Well, because Connaught was like a particularly rebellious Irish province.
0: I bet they were. <laughs> they were. <laughs> Their very name sounds contrary. <laughs> All right. So anyway, Elizabeth, I hope we've uh, made a few reparations there. I did uh, I did alert Ivan and Red to this fact. They were our guests on the last podcast. And Red says he doesn't apologize because it was hilarious. <laughs> so that's his official position.
1: Yeah. And uh, go Canucks.
0: <laughs> Leafs, man. Leafs.
1: They're not in the playoffs. Oh. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't even realize it was still hockey season. Yeah, they're having the playoffs now.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yeah. uh, go... Senators. Senators. Go Senators. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Next up, uh, Cousin Susanna from Vermont writes, Hi, Kelly and Tom. In an attempt to stave off my Downton Abbey withdrawal shakes, I'm listening to The World of Downton Abbey, which is written by Jessica Fellows. Yes, that Fellows the audiobook version of which is read by one lady, Cora McGee. Oh, my. It scratches many itches at once. While it is genuinely interesting social and historical background into what we see on the show, it it also provides hours and hours of McGee's funny accent, with the delightful bonus of her Julian Fellowes impression every time she has to read one of his quotes. It sounds like she's doing a bombastic spoof of his voice, but I fear she is not. (laughs) Dear (laughs) McGee. Anyway, I do recommend the book for the genuine historical knowledge it imparts. The book reminded me a lot of your own segments on history and fashion, so I thought you and my fellow listeners would like to know about it if they haven't already read it. Uh, She provides the link to the audiobook here, so we'll make sure and post that so that you can uh, access it. She's getting it from audible.com, and from what I understand, they usually, if you sign up, you get one free book. Oh. So you didn't hear it from me, but that's how you can cheat the system. (laughs) Carry on in Bristol fashion. Cousin Susanna from Vermont. All right. No, I actually, and I, you know, I think it'll be easier to kind of get into all that sort of once we get done with the second series. Right, but I've, right. I've seen that, and I know that Jessica Fellows is also working on a second Downton Abbey companion book.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, no, I, I, I had been interested in that book, and now that I know that there's an audio version read by McGee, like, wow.
0: No, I mean, I think I know what we're going to do in the car from now
1: on. <laughs> <laughs> Our next telegram comes from Scott. He writes, Dear Cousins, you will see that I have finally opted for a telegram instead of a carrier pigeon. Uh,
0: Scott has helpfully coined the term carrier pigeon for Twitter yes. uh, versus doing an email, which is very appropriate because Twitter has that bird symbol.
1: That's, that anyway, it does.
0: carry on. Yes.
1: Uh, in the recent podcast, you also d- seem to assume, as did Mrs. Hughes, that Jane's story about her husband dying at the front is actually true. When my wife and I watched the episode, we thought that perhaps Jane was conducting a scam just more successfully. We thought our theory justified, especially when we saw just how well she and Lord Grantham get along with each other, so to speak. Do the goings-on between Lord G and Jane lead you to question anything about Jane's story? Or is Jane just a vulnerable war widow after all? After all, she gets a great reference out of Lord G, probably worth more than she could ever accomplish in the caddy downstairs that is within Downton Abbey. Wonderful podcast, easily the most thorough and thoughtful out there, your Kentucky cousin, Scott. And Scott also, incidentally, sent us a full cast list for Julian Fellow's Titanic, uh, so we'll post that on our Tumblr for anyone who is interested in that.
0: Yeah, and, and again, we got this email long before we aired last week's podcast, right, right. in which the concept of jading <laughs> yes. uh, was introduced, and this is not the only message we've gotten about this, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's very widespread. I had no idea, because yeah. I didn't suspect a thing. Yeah. and. I still don't. I, I agree. have. To, I, I hate to bust your bubble, Jaders, <laughs> and God knows there's plenty of room for disagreement here. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I just don't think that there's anything sinister going on with Jane. I agree. She doesn't seem that smart. Yeah, she seems kind of uncomfortable in general, but she doesn't seem like she's scheming.
1: Yeah, no, she's just she has been married, and so she has a perspective on life that nobody else downstairs has. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, the 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 way that she's set apart in her interactions with Lord Grantham make me think even more so that she was married and, and lost her husband. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there's there's no proof either way, mm-hmm. but that's that's but, how I, mean, I feel. But I mean,
0: it's not as if you know Julian Fellows is not the most subtle bloke out there, <laughs> and I feel like if if she really truly was trying to scam him, it would have been painted in very broad strokes.
1: Yeah yeah
0: but again as we will see in our next letter we are certainly not the only opinion out there yes our final letter comes from cousin Catherine. dear cousins tom and kelly greetings from cousin katherine here in baltimore maryland i wanted to telegram you to let you know that i very much enjoy listening to your fine podcast it is oh so entertaining and i love all of the digs and inside jokes about downton i usually listen to your show while cooking dinner and driving along in the motor Your show makes my life better, fueling my Downton obsession and getting to laugh about Mcgee and that scheming Edith. I have not caught up to your most recent episode, All the Gingers Are at the Front, but I hope that when Jane the Maid starts showing up, you mention how much of a creep she is, lurking around (laughs) corners, worse than O'Brien, and getting all personal with Lord Grantham. Inappropriate! And WTF, Lord Grantham! Mcgee finds something to do with her life and you get all depressed and have to make out with the maid? Shame! Anyway, I recently visited England to go to a friend's wedding. Luckily for me, Highclere Castle was open to the public then. So after taking a train from Bristol, missing a stop for a connecting train in Reading... Riding the train back to London, taking another train to Newbury, hopping into a cab, and dropping our bags off at a hotel, we finally then took the cab to Highclere Castle, the location where our beloved Downton Abbey is filmed. It was a wonderful day. We toured the castle, the library, sitting room, dining room, Kamal Pamuk's bedroom, Sybil's bedroom, and McGee's bedroom. Then walked down the grand staircase and into the main gallery and out the door to have tea and scones outside." was a lovely day i have attached a picture from my visit that i hope you will like thank you for your great show and all the laughs best cousin Catherine, and her photo which we will definitely post for you to check out is a photo of cousin Catherine holding up a little sign that says i heart up yours downstairs
1: and it's one of the favorite things that it was
0: it was very cool yeah very very <laughs> it
1: made our day for yes sure. absolutely
0: so that said cousin Catherine, for your long sojourn to <laughs> yes. Highclere castle we dubbed the Cousin of the Week for this week.
1: Congratulations.
0: Congratulations, and uh, have some tea and scones to celebrate. <laughs> so, I believe it is now time to get into our recap.
1: That's right. Uh, when we were first starting, we happened to pause on the opening credits, and I noticed that the bell is ringing, that is ringing the opening credits is for the saloon. And it just made me sad that we don't see more scenes set in the saloon. Yeah. With, like, you know, the men drinking whiskey and the women drinking sarsaparilla. Mm-hmm.
0: Somebody on piano.
1: Yeah. Anytime
0: O'Brien walks in, the piano cuts out. (laughs) Uh, Well, before we get into it, we should announce our uh, character ceasefire for the episode.
1: I had it written down and everything.
0: We've been giving this guy a a real tough time. Yeah. But we decided to to lay off him this episode. Branson, free and clear. Go about your business, Branson. (laughs) That's right. Take care of that monkey. (laughs) So, after we see the bell ringing for the saloon, we see an ambulance loading up outside the main entrance, and it drives off. It's the year 1919, and we see Edith standing wistfully watching the ambulance drive away, and she sighs.
1: Yeah, Edith has a sad...
0: She has much of a sad. Yeah. And Mrs. Hughes comes out and joins her. Edith says that they've just taken the last of the equipment out of Downton Abbey, and Mrs. Hughes says the maids have put the drawing room back to normal. So things are settling down, and, uh, yeah. but whether they will go back to the way they were before the war remains to be seen. Oh, my. Mm hmm.
1: We get some tracking shots following Lord Grantham into the parlor. He tells McGee that he is going to the village. He wants to have a word with Travis. I'm not sure what it is that you talk about with Travis, but he wants to have a word with him, and he also wants to avoid Sir Richard.
0: Yes. It should also be noted that a very energetic Isis has accompanied him into the room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ISIS is like jumping all around McGee, and she's like, "What? What? Still with this thing? We couldn't send that out with the rest of the equipment."
1: <laughs> no, they couldn't. McGee then suggests that Bates should be sacked because his wife is dead. <laughs> uh, Lord, Lord Grantham says, "Last he checked, that wasn't a reason," and McGee seems confused, as if she actually thought that was a reason
0: she's come, as far as we can tell, she's come to this conclusion without any input from O'Brien. <laughs> right. Like, it's now finally, you know, born fruit in her. All of O'Brien's scheming <laughs> and she's just like, gotta get that Bates out of here.
1: No, she's just, just like... like <laughs> it's
0: like the Manchurian candidate.
1: <laughs> yeah, just every, th- every time she hears Bates' name, she's like, maybe this is a reason to fire him. <laughs> And she also would like to get rid of Matthew, uh-huh. as long as we are getting rid of people, um, and send him back to Crawley House, where he can be as independent as he can, she says. Lord Grantham does not take that well. No, no. at all.
0: Well, he's like, oh, what, we, you know, we should just kick him out, and the look on McGee's <laughs> face is clearly, uh, yeah. That's
1: what I just said.
0: Like, <laughs> he's not really even related to us.
1: <laughs> yeah. Lord Grantham wonders if there's something that McGee McG isn't telling him about Mary and Matthew,
0: because she expresses concern that Matthew should go because Mary needs to get on with her life. Yes, uh, because presumably Mary has been like tending to him still or
1: something. Mm-hmm. And uh, McGee denies it and says that it's it's nonsense or something. And uh, whatever she says, in Lord Grantham says, "Oh, because I want to protect Mary in a ring of steel." And then I just imagined us cutting to, like, Mary in a ring of steel, like, bound to a chair. Just like, uh, I suppose I should have expected it.
0: (laughs) Well, just I don't even understand it because he doesn't seem to be protecting Mary particularly. Yeah. Ring of steel or otherwise.
1: Even more than occasionally aware that she exists. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: it's very bizarre. Yeah. And you you could just see it on her face. McGee is exasperated in the way that all of us are after this scene. Yeah. McGee has some stellar facial expressions this episode. She does. If I knew how to make (laughs) GIFs, and I could only make GIFs out of one episode of Downton Abbey, this would be it.
1: Yeah. No, and I will say, I was actually, I was going to say this during the Jaders discussion. One thing we can all agree on is that we dislike Lord Grantham. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
0: Lord Grantham, ugh. Yeah. Boo. He's the opposite of cousin of the
1: week. (laughs) Yeah.
0: We see Carson carrying some teacups on a tray into the regular library as opposed to the small library. He's bringing them for Matthew and Lavinia. Edith is in the room as well because she's just around. And Matthew says Carson shouldn't have to do that, which he kind of does. Like, he does work there.
1: Right. He's a servant.
0: Yes. But Carson does say that he hopes that the end of the war will bring the return of footmen, presumably everywhere, but primarily to Downton Abbey. Right. And Matthew suggests that Sir Richard could buy him a dozen footmen when Carson moves to Haxby Park, because in case we've forgotten, Sir Richard Carlyle has a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. So much.
1: Yeah. And Carson gets a little huffy about it. For some reason, yeah, it was... it's
0: like really. I would be excited yeah. at the prospect of having all the footmen I could eat. That's
1: that's right. You've been complaining. Complete. You're just going to be knee deep in footmen. Mm-hmm.
0: It's that whole careful what you wish for thing again. Where's <laughs> O'Brien? Where's our soothsayer?
1: <laughs> yeah. <gasps> Lord Grantham is walking along, wearing uh, what appears to be a, like a fedora. it Looks
0: like a fedora to me. Yeah. I don't remember if we covered fedoras. Yeah. Or if there's something that's very similar to a fedora. Right. But it looks fedora esque. Yeah. I guess he's a hipster now that oh, the yeah. war is over. All he needs is an ironic mustache.
1: Well, you, you could take that one off of Major Brian. He's, he's not using it That's anymore. That's true. That's true. <laughs> mustache going to waste. <laughs> he spots Jane, who is picking up some fruit that has fallen on the path. He says that, oh, aren't we feeding you? And she says, no. Her mother has an Apple store and always loads her up with apples and iPod touches and whatnot. <laughs> no and we were
0: actually initially i was like what like she has a store where all they sell are apples the fruit right then we realized it meant that she has you know a laid in a store of apples right right so and i'm sure at this time of rationing this is probably good yeah so
1: well played mrs whatever mrs
0: jane's mom (laughs) Moore's, Moore's.
1: but that would probably be her husband's name oh that's true so we don't know and never will Mm -hmm. know jane's mom's name
0: mrs freddy's grandmother yes
1: uh, speaking of which, Lord Grantham asks after the mathematical pauper. He says that he wrote to the headmaster of the grammar school in Ripon to uh, keep an eye out for Freddie and look favorably upon him. And of course, Jane is delighted to hear that. Mm-hmm. Then he uh, just randomly decides to say that Jane must miss her husband very much, which she does. Yeah, but she says she still has Freddie. She counts her blessings. And they discuss how terrible everybody that we haven't seen on screen
0: has suffered from the has war. Has suffered. Apparently, right. thirty people from the estate. Yes. So you know the the land that encompasses Downton Abbey. Right. So thirty people from that estate. Some family down the road lost like all of their sons. Mm-hmm. You know, and then William, and then Lord Grantham's like, and then there's Matthew, who arguably is the success story of this war. <laughs> like. <laughs> He's still here. Yeah. But uh, it's weird because Lord Grantham is so fatalistic in this scene. Yeah. And I feel like it could have been a really rich vein to mine. Yeah. Him being extremely fatalistic. And it just doesn't quite ring true. Yeah. It's just,
1: it's like between the way his character's previously been. And it's like, I feel like if there was somehow another episode that this, we saw this develop more. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it's that and it's like. You know, we've all discussed the fact that he doesn't seem to care about his daughters very much, Mm -hmm. Um, and we know that he does care about Matthew, but just the way in which he seems to completely like disregard his entire family in this episode is very much out of character. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, be on lookout for that because it's very weird.
1: Yeah, he's yeah he's he wonders what the war was for. His theory, it was to clear the way for lords to have sex with housemaids. <laughs> what was the point of World War One? We'll see if that is true.
0: Yeah, and then a, a car pulls up, kind of down the road and he worries that someone might see him having this conversation and he's like oh we all better go inside
1: yeah and Jane's uh, like actually
0: that. no jane says he does yeah. not because lord Grantham's an idiot he's <laughs> right. like maybe i should go this looks kind of bad yeah and i'm thinking maybe the dowager countess needs to intervene here with a conversation about inappropriate class relationships yeah because you know sybil's one thing but like right. your married son yeah he should really know better yeah Up at the house, Sir Richard arrives. He is the one who was in the car. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says the train was late, thus derailing Lord Grantham's plan to avoid him prior to dinner time. Yeah. But anyway, uh, in reference to the fact that the trains run late, Lord Grantham says, welcome to the new world. Uh, Maybe you guys should move to Italy. (laughs) I hear their trains run on time. Mm Ew. Spoilers. (laughs) Sir Richard quips a witticism worthy of the Dowager Countess yes. and says that the first emotion people feel when a war ends is relief. The second
1: is disappointment. And, well, and Lord Grantham just says, How sad, but how true. And Richard Carlyle was like, No, you were supposed to say, <laughs> Oh, you're so wicked, <laughs> exactly, Richard Carlyle. Exactly. Yeah. He,
0: just, he just, you know, Sir Richard is not playing to a room that appreciates it. <laughs>
1: yeah. He was like, I've been working on that epigram the entire drive up here. <laughs>
0: Oscar Wilde, help me draft (laughs) it. That's not true. Oscar Wilde was dead by now. Yes. Maybe uh, George Bernard Shaw. Sure. Regardless, (laughs) Lord Grantham confirms that disappointment follows relief by offering Sir Richard Carlyle some tea. (laughs) Sir Richard Carlyle silently wonders why they still have an implemented cocktail hour.
1: Yeah. Downstairs, Anna asks Mrs. Patmore if she's going to miss the extra staff that they had had as part of the hospital crew. She says no. However, she is short of supplies.
0: And uh, she's saying she doesn't know how she'll manage. And then she busts out one of her biblical uh, quotes that she just likes to bust out and yeah. goes, the Lord tempers the wind to the shorn lamb. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, do you want to cook the lamb? Like, how is... And also, don't people shear lambs the springtime when <laughs> the Lord naturally tempers the wind anyway?
1: Yeah. One thing that kind of interests me, and I should look into at some point... But assuming that Mrs. Patmore is Catholic, which I always sort of have, like, how does that work? I mean, I, I'm sure she just goes to church or whatever, but, like, are there Catholic churches around? I mean, Yeah, what, how? That's, that's
0: something to consider. Yeah. I'm also surprised, though, if she's a Catholic that she knows that many Bible verses. <laughs> because you and I were both raised Catholic, and yeah. I know that neither of us knows any Bible verses. That's true. Like, it's just not... But again, it may have been different back then. There yeah. may have been more emphasis. You know, there was the Catechism, but there... Right. You know, there probably wasn't a whole lot to do, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thomas is also hanging out downstairs, and Daisy asks what he's going to do, what his plans are. He doesn't really know. She says, where are you going to go? And he just, he says, what concern of it is yours, and storms off. And Daisy's like, I just wanted to make sure you're never coming back.
0: (laughs) Uh, also should be noted, Daisy has a
1: new dress! Hey! It's the
0: same color scheme as her old dress, but it's got kind of a cute sort of, like, grid design on it. It's very becoming.
1: Yeah, well, and I think also she just, she carries herself differently.
0: Well, she's a widow now. Yeah,
1: no, and I I just am really impressed from, you know, as far as the actress is concerned, Mm -hmm. that just... Still has basically the same dialogue and the same thoughts about things, but she just has more confidence.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, she wouldn't... uh, Yeah, she did seem very, like, comfortable asking Thomas this question, but he was on his period or whatever,
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, predictably, O'Brien follows him into the hall. This
0: whole episode, I feel like everything she does, like, she's just, like, watching Thomas, and she's like, Oh, yeah, I have to go scheme now. Her heart's just not in it anymore.
1: Yeah. And he uh, reveals the plans that he's been working on to go into the black market, and he's going to make some money and get settled as a regular businessman. And O'Brien says, well, that's your future settled as a a plutocrat.
0: (laughs) Which is an awesome word.
1: Yes. Uh, But where are you going to live now? And he says, oh, I'm sure they won't mind if I stop on here for a week or two. And O'Brien's like, oh.
0: Everyone hates both of us, right? Like, right. they would kick me out if it wasn't for the fact that her ladyship likes my bangs. <laughs> but then the dressing gong sounds and everybody rushes off.
1: Oh, O'Brien, I never feel ugly around you.
0: <laughs> oh, O'Brien, <laughs> would your bangs like to come to luncheon? <laughs> You know how hard it is balancing foreheads in the country.
1: <laughs> oh, and one other note on that scene that Thomas says he's going to get a banger to deliver the goods, which confused me because the only thing I knew a banger as was a sausage, mm-hmm. which didn't seem useful. <laughs> um,
0: Come on, it's McGinty. The goods delivering sausage. <laughs> that would oh, great. Oh. <laughs>
1: handy as that would be and delightful um what he actually is referring to that is a term for like an old beat-up car
0: like a junker huh yeah a jalopy yeah a fixer-upper
1: those those things
0: yeah those are the only terms that i know for a <laughs> for a, a junker yeah so anyway well
1: now you know a new one a banger a banger so if you're ever in uh, 1920s england if you
0: get in iraq is it a banger mash
1: <laughs> that is an excellent question
0: Speaking of excellent questions, we're about to get some great answers in one of everybody's favorite recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our resident guy that knows stuff, Tom. <laughs> oh,
1: all right. I'm discussing today the process of demobilization from World War One. demobilization the term for getting all the troops back into civilian life. It was a very chaotic process for all the countries that I found information about, which was... The U.S., Canada, and Britain, because I only know English, you know. Um, (laughs) Right. But none of them were really very prepared for the war to end, essentially. In the United States, as of Armistice Day, they had no plan at all. There was one colonel in the war plan's office who had started to, like, think about it. And 11 days after the Armistice finally, like, submitted a report, but, I mean, the thing about, for the U.S. in particular, like, they entered it so late, they were still ramping up. Mm-hmm. Like, they still had a ton of people that they were trying to bring into the military. So, for them, I mean, the main thing for them was just, like, okay, stop enlisting people, and then we'll start figuring out how right. to get everybody home. Canada uh, had troubles as well. They actually had the Kinmill Park riots. Canadian unit was stationed in North Wales waiting to get sent home. They were overcrowded in their location. They weren't receiving their pay. Uh, they weren't getting any coal for heating because there were strikes going on that were interfering with the shipping everywhere. But nobody told them that. Nobody really told them anything. They were there for months. This was in March of 1919, so four months after the war was over, they were all in this crowded, miserable, cold camp, and nobody would tell them anything. And they wound up, like, mutinying and rioting, and and a bunch of them were killed just because they didn't have a plan to get them home. Mm -hmm. In Britain... Lloyd George had created a Ministry of Reconstruction in 1916 which covered Demobilization and just sort of the whole General what are we going to do after the war Question but after the armistice, it was disbanded because it was a wartime ministry, and they were like, okay, we're just going to disband all the wartime ministries, now that it's peacetime, despite the fact that that was when it was really time for the Ministry of Reconstruction. The original plan was that they would first start off bringing people home who had priority jobs, which are people who worked in like the mining industry and other industries that were sort of critical to you know the functioning of the economy, but soldiers staged massive protests about that, it started, you know, because there would be situations where a unit in England was being shipped back to France, even though the war was over, just because they wanted to, were sort of shuffling people around to get these particular people home. And units would not go. They're like, we're not going back to France or to, you know, Italy or mm-hmm. to Russia or whatever if the war is over. So they eventually had to, you know, change their plans. First of all, they're just like, okay, here's the deal. First in, first out. We're just going to get everybody out of here in the order that they enlisted. But it took a long time. As of February of 1920, so this is a year and a half after the war, there was still 125,000 soldiers that had not been released. Yeah. I mean, and they just weren't ready back home to have all these people come back. There was a massive housing shortage because all these young men, instead of moving out into their own homes, had joined up in the military and Mm -hmm. been gone for years nobody had been building any homes and the government was massively in debt at this point
0: it's a good thing matthew fixed up those cottages then It,
1: it is actually yeah the government was massively in debt tried to build up houses but only got about as quarter of many as they needed and just ran out of money and just stopped so it was it was a major problem getting everybody back into the economy um, and I also I looked into the uh, actual sort of process, what an individual soldier went through in the course of getting demobilized. And I found uh, a website that I've actually found before called 1914-1918.net. That's all numbers, so 1914-1918.net, which is it's a sort of genealogical focus, but just a lot of really interesting information in that. And in particular, their thing on... What the process of getting demobilized was like Like I'm not even talking that much about it Just because I would have just read that website off And that you know there's no point to that But just some interesting things like You know you had to get any currency From Italy if you were stationed in Italy Or France or whatever You had to get all that changed at an army post office Before you could come home After you were sent to your home From the last base they put you at You were still technically in the military Meaning that you still had the right to wear your uniform So you could wear your uniform home Which, you know, once 28 days after you were discharged, then you were officially no longer in the military and no longer allowed to wear a uniform. But just all the different, you know, they've got pictures of all the different forms that you got filled out and getting your last paycheck stamped off. And I just was really interested in that. So that's something that, that people can check out. And that's what I've got on demobilization.
0: All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So we head back into the recap with Mr. Bates dressing Lord Grantham for dinner. And he's saying that he had planned to lay out his dinner jacket. Yes. the famous dinner jacket from the previous episode. But he changed his mind because Carson told him that the Dowager would be dining with them. Lord Grantham says, you know, good. We wouldn't want to frighten the horses. <laughs> right. Lord Grantham asks about uh, Mrs. Bates' death and sort of how that's going. Right. And Bates says, you know, there was no note. There was no explanation. You know, it's it's all very mysterious. And Lord Grantham just kind of says to himself, oh, you know, it's so bizarre. She must have somehow gotten a hold of the stuff. Right. Presumably poison that she used to kill herself. Mr. Bates gets a very dark look on his face.
1: Yeah. And Lord Grantham says, I'm just talking to myself, we'll drop the subject, Mm -hmm. which inspired me to write, we'll drop the subject, the Robert Crawley story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah.
1: In the hallway, Anne is walking along when Sir Richard leaps out from a door and uh, stops her. And lures her into his room, which is just the most evil looking room. It's all
0: red. yeah. like it makes Mary's room look awesome. Yeah. like it's just in the way it's lit like it's like the the maw of hell. Uh, yeah. And it's like okay, we get it. He's evil.
1: Right. like he doesn't have to actually summon a demon for you to Couldn't he have had us. his walls
0: painted black like Lady Rosamond? at least that's fashionable. Yeah.
1: Anyway, he has been waiting for Anna he confirms that she tends to uh, the Crawley ladies. And he asks, is she getting enough? He would be happy to increase her stipend, which she at first assumes she's, he's trying to hire her away to Haxby. And she explains she's engaged to Mr. Bates and she can't do that. But in fact, what he is looking is for her to spy on Lady Mary and report back to him. Mm-hmm. She says no. She yeah. says, I'm, I just wouldn't have the time. Because, of course, it's never called spying. It's just he wants to know what she's interested in. But
0: well, because he wants her to be happy. Right. It, I mean, it's, it's just, oh my god, it's so weird. Yeah. And it's just so obvious that he thinks that she's going to be both more stupid and more greedy mm-hmm. than she actually is. Yeah. he's like, I don't know what you've heard about servants, but, like, they do have functioning brains, most of them.
1: Yeah. No, uh, I just I just imagine, like, the thought going through his head is, huh. So much easier to bribe people in London.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and when she refuses, I feel like he wants to be like, "Tell me, should I be less creepy when I make these sorts of offers? <laughs> I seem to have failed here. Just, some constructive criticism would really be helpful."
1: <laughs> right, and he also asks her not to tell Lady Mary, which
0: uh, yeah, I and so, well, I mean, of course, because he can't spy on her if she knows someone's going to be spying on her. Right, but Anna is rightfully just kind of. Disturbed by the whole business. Yeah. This is not. This is not the the kind of servanting Anna signed up for. The, right. Down in the uh, at dinner. D- at dinner. Well I think they're in the drawing room.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Yes, it's, I think it's after dinner. They're in the drawing room because I see the Dowager take a, a glass of sherry or something. Okay, okay. Uh, but Lord Grantham mentions the dinner jacket, and the Dowager Countess is scandalized <laughs> and says he might as well have come downstairs in a robe or pajamas. <laughs> She's back, folks. Yeah. She's back. She's swinging right out of the gate. Yep. So, you know, strap in, <laughs> take your tea bag out. It's steeped far long enough. <laughs> Isabel is commenting that she really likes the new fashions and she thinks that they're very practical and uh, they're better suited for things other than sitting on the chaise long. And the Dowager Countess uh, snarks that she will just stick to the chaise long. And Sybil says that Granny can't possibly want things to go back to how they were before the war, but of course she does. <laughs> This is where I have to say, Sybil, have you met your grandmother? Like, (laughs) Sybil's just got this naivete about her. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's common to all young people where you just assume everyone's had the same life-changing epiphanies that you've had. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so the Dowager Countess wants things to get back to normal as quickly as possible. Yes. And Sybil asks her father if he would like things to get back to the way they were. And he says he used to think his life had value and he'd like to feel that way again.
1: Yeah. Cut to reaction shots of everyone going... You thought your life had value? Yeah, it's
0: quite awkward.
1: What was it that made you think that exactly?
0: (laughs) You got Isis. (laughs) Mary brings up the boys' haircuts girls are now wearing in Paris. Uh, The very short haircuts that we discussed, uh, the bob. And uh, Matthew tells her that she better not try it. And she says she might. Ho, ho, ho. They don't like each other anymore. No, sir. (laughs) Lavinia comments that she's not quite sure how feminine the new haircuts are, Mary says, I'm not sure how feminine I am. Uh, so Richard immediately jumps in and says, she's very feminine. Which, <laughs> have you seen her boobs? Because they're not that, you know.
1: Look, the phrase no she homo had not Pe- yet been invented, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> she could play Peter Pan in a stage production. <laughs> she could. That is absolutely, and I I would not be surprised if Michelle Dockery has at some point. That's a
0: very good point. If she can <laughs> sing and dance, yeah. McGee gets Carson's attention and informs him that the infamous Major Bryant's parents are going to be coming to Downton for luncheon. <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs>
1: Out in the garage, Branson is working on the car by lamplight, still not wearing the jumpsuit. I think
0: they must have seen the dailies from the day that they (laughs) shot that, and they're like, it's too late, we can't go back, but he is never to wear that (laughs) jumpsuit again.
1: (laughs) He threatened to quit the show. Sybil comes in, Uh, she is still dressed for dinner, and he says that she looks very fine. She says that all she has is her stuff from her first season before the war.
0: Notably, she's wearing that dress with the weird half-sleeves. Yes,
1: and she's trying to wear it all out, which we were confused a bit because other people have new dresses, but then Sybil's been wearing a nurse's uniform for so long. Yeah, so
0: we're just kind of assuming that she, well, also, I don't think she would have had time because all their dresses are custom-made. Right, right. So I don't see where she would have had time to, you know, just go off to (laughs) ripping.
1: Yeah. She didn't
0: want anything. You could find it ripping anyway.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, Sybil says that she envies Branson because he has things to do. He and didn't
0: even specify. He just like, I was just busy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he has a job. Yeah. And she had a job for a while and now doesn't anymore. She's just got the chaise longue. Mm-hmm. And Branson wants to know if that means that she has made up her mind.
0: She hasn't quite, right. she says. She's almost.
1: Yeah. So, I, you know, I think Branson and the audience all kind of sees which way the wind is blowing yes. now.
0: And it's worth noting that this whole episode, this is the Branson and Civil story we want to see. Yeah. We don't want to see him being all weird and creepy and jerky. I mean, yeah. this feels like, you know, they kind of started out in a certain place at the end of the first series, and this is the natural place that it would have picked up. Right. I would have just as soon never seen them together until now. Yeah. Because, it se- you know, they seem to like each other and to be yeah. attracted to each other and have things in common again. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they should have ignored the class differences and all those things. Right. It's just, you know, you can't expect me to buy that he's this great guy that she should be with – if he's going to be so condescending to her...
1: Right. I mean, I feel like it's something where, where they could have gotten away with some of those scenes. There just need to be other types of scenes exactly. in there, and they never there never were. There was just
0: no evidence of them actually wanting to be together.
1: Yeah. But it's back in this episode. Yes, which is and, great,
0: and we love it. Yeah. In, I'm not sure if it's the Carson... I think it's the Carson Cave. I think so. Uh, Carson is telling Mrs. Hughes about the Bryant's visit. and. Uh, he wants to know, what do you mean, how did she say it? Because <laughs> Mrs. Hughes is, of course, you know, fishing for information she can use to help Ethel and uh, the bastard out. Yeah. She then changes the subject because, you know, he doesn't think she said it any special way, which I can confirm she did not. <laughs> Unless you count the way she says lunch. <laughs> so she asks about the renovations at Haxby Park, and he says some of the gadgets in the kitchen and the, the things that he's doing are like a film with Theta Barra. Mm -hmm. who was a famous uh, actress at the time. That's
1: right. She was apparently only behind Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford in popularity at the time. Yeah. And she was the the original vamp. The term was coined to describe her as the sort of seductive woman. Um, And she wore very risque costumes. I mean, to the point where starting in about the 30s, they started enforcing codes like in the, the stuff that she wore in her as yeah, Cleopatra. Like the code. Yeah. Wasn't even like it would be decades before anybody would wear anything that was uh-huh. gay again. Wow. Um, sadly, of all the famous early actors, very little of her work survived because the studio that she worked with there was a fire in the thirties in New Jersey that destroyed most of the movies she was ever in. Bummer. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's also worth noting she is originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I am originally from. That is correct. And I share her love of being scantily clad. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes then asks Mr. Carson if he uh, will regret leaving Downton. And he says, yes, he will regret it every day. But he feels it's very important to help Lady Mary set up her home in those first few years when it's very important to get it right. Yeah. Which is very interesting. I don't know. It's it's interesting because both Lady Mary and Carson are are looking to kind of prolong this culture and this way of keeping a home that is already obsolete yeah you know they yeah. they don't quite know it yet but it's just it's not ever going to be the same yeah i don't know there's just something bittersweet about how he feels it's so deeply important even though everything's changed
1: yeah and you know, and i think there's this thing about how he's saying that you're going to have your fir- first few parties, and at that point, everybody will decide whether you're good exactly. at running the house or not. And it takes a long time to change their opinion. Mm-hmm. So he wants to wants to get those first few done.
0: And you know, Mrs. Hughes can't understand why he bears such affection for Lady Mary, right? Uh, who, in her opinion, is an uppity minx who's the author of her own misfortunes, which is possibly the best line Mrs. <laughs> Hughes has ever said. <laughs> Tom, of course, was sputtering and <laughs> protesting as she said it.
1: No, no, no. I like Mrs. Hughes, and like Carson, I'm willing to forgive her error on this subject. Yes,
0: but uh, Carson tells a... Some, he, Carson is clearly more touched by this story than either I or Mrs. Hughes was. <laughs> but, you know, uh, he says that when Lady Mary was a child, she was a guinea a minute.
1: Yes, which I had to look up, but it just means like a barrel of laughs, a great time, something for which you would pay a guinea a minute to experience. So
0: he tells a story of how Lady Mary decided once when she was very small that she was going to run away from home and she wanted some of the silver to sell, thus proving Mrs. Hughes's point. (laughs) But anyway, uh, Carson said, you know, he couldn't give her any silver because he wouldn't be able to explain that to her father, but he would give her a sixpence to spend in the village to get her started. And in repayment, she gave him a kiss. And just, I mean, I think it's a dumb story. <laughs> and I don't think it's all that... It's not illustrative on, it, on the face of it, but the the face carson's face as he's telling it is just so touching yeah and i just god i wish he was my dad yeah like he's just he's such a sweet man
1: yeah well it's because you know the Crawleys are the only children that he will ever have uh-huh. you know and he's known when he made the decisions to you know embark on this career it's a career that you never get married to have children mm-hmm. and you know that's that's his daughter you know, in a in a very real sense yeah
0: no, and it's, it's very sweet. Yeah. Then Anna comes in and wants to see Mrs. Hughes and uh, says that she might as well tell Mr. Carson as well. And then we cut away, but we can figure yeah. with our keen deductive reasoning <laughs> that she's going to let them know uh, about the shit heel Richard Carlyle trying to buy her off.
1: Yes. Bates is putting Matthew into bed. Matthew says, well, he tells Bates that he's very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also tells Bates... That he has been feeling a tingling in his legs, and he wonders what it might mean. Bates asks if he's talked to Dr. Clarkson, and he says that yes. Dr. Clarkson says that it's an illusion, a memory of a feeling, or something like that. And Bates says, well, just give it time. It'll make itself known if something has changed. And, uh, and he's heading out, and Matthew asks him not to tell anyone. And uh, he'd hate for anybody to start to hope. And Bates says, I won't tell anyone. Um, and it was I was struck in this scene by the fact that you know Bates is much more likable when it 's something that he doesn 't care that much yeah. about because it was just like he 's Just a very solid presence in this thing that Matthew can feel comfortable telling him about Mm -hmm. this, you know, personal matter. He's
0: he's the Edwardian equivalent of Yahoo Answers. (laughs) I guess he's literally the precursor to Ask Jeeves in this particular (laughs) situation. No, but I mean, you didn't have any options. And I mean, because I I keep coming back to this idea, like, he's literally the only other crippled person that Matthew knows. Yeah. And like, Bates isn't even really crippled, you know, like, you know. Nobody was all like, oh, we're never going to talk to Mr. Crawley again. Uh, Yeah. Up yours downstairs. (laughs) At Bastard House, Mrs. Hughes tells Ethel about the Bryant's upcoming visit to Downton, and she sets up a stupid plan (laughs) to show little Charlie to his grandmother. And I, I think it's really admirable that Mrs. Hughes keeps trying. I just question... I don't know. It's hard to say cause I, you know, I know that she genuinely wants to help Ethel, but it just seems like she could be putting herself at risk, which I guess mm. I should think is admirable. I don't know, but I'm I just I keep going back and forth on this. But Ethel asks about you know the the grandfather, and Missus Hughes wisely says if either of them is interested, it will be the mother. Yeah, Missus Hughes is very savvy about gender roles and sort of how to how to try and, and pull this off. Yeah. She says Ethel will have to wait in the game larder, which sounds horrifying. This being where you know all of the, the fresh game that they eat at Downton is stored. Right.
1: Yeah, this is what happens to the things between shooting them and eating them. Exactly. They're there. Yeah, well, and I also it occurs to me just now that I'm sure you would think at some point in her life a coworker of Mrs. Hughes would have gotten pregnant before. Yeah, that's true. Like she's probably seen this happen, not necessarily when she was housekeeper, but you know, earlier when she yeah, was Yeah, I mean it, or... it's got to
0: be something, you know, people have been having sex since <laughs> they knew how. Yeah. And doing it under very questionable circumstances <laughs> since they realized there were questionable circumstances. So Yeah. It's also worth noting in this scene that Ethel has put a hat on the kid. <laughs> no indication of socks. So His feet aren't in the frame. I'm not optimistic.
1: <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, Sybil and Edith are walking through the library, and they're lamenting how strange it is to have all the rooms all to themselves again. E- Edith suggests that they will eventually get used to it. Uh, Sybil says that she doesn't want to get used to it. She liked being useful and working and being really tired for a good reason. And, and, and uh, Edith understands, uh, but she says she's supposed there's no way to escape it. Sybil says that she has found a way to escape it. Edith says, nothing too drastic, I hope, but (laughs) it's drastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Irish. (laughs) Edith says that she also doesn't want to go back, and Sybil tells her that she's much nicer than she was before the war.
0: Which, uh, this is the official up-yours-downstairs position. Completely true. Yeah. We see... uh, Thomas and O'Brien opening up a shed, presumably the shed he procured in the village to store his goods. That's right. Uh, it is, in fact, his store shed. <laughs> and he got all of his product from a chap in Leeds. Some of it's army surplus. He got some from America, some from Ireland, Ireland just everywhere. Yeah. And uh, there's just, you know, there's bags of flour and, and, and tins of things. Spam. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. There's just, it's a lot of food in there. And he, he says, you know, with the with the shortages everywhere, he'll be sold out in a few months.
1: Yeah. Yeah the only thing we know is that it's nothing perishable so yes. he doesn't have to worry about it going and off before he's he he's going to you know start
0: it. out with Mrs. Patmore.
1: Yeah. Mary wants to know why Carson is no longer going to Haxby Park with her. We come in in the middle of this conversation. Uh and Carson explains about Sir Richard's little spying plan. And Mary is a bitch about it.
0: Yeah. Like, like unequivocally bitchy. Yeah.
1: And, but, and I think, you know, credit to Mel- Michelle Dockery in this scene, it's clearly because she's really, like, hurt mm-hmm. about, I mean, it's about the whole thing. That Richard did that, that Anna didn't come to her first about it, and that Carson is leaving. Mm-hmm. Like, all those three things are, you know, she's, yeah. she's hurt by them. And so she just cold as ice. Mm-hmm. And then Sir Richard c- comes into the room at <laughs> an awkward moment. But he says he like asks Mary to go for a walk. she says they should change first and tells Sir Richard that Carson is not going to become with him after all. He heads out and Richard expresses his uh regret about Carson, she says, oh, they'll be two a penny now that they're all coming back from the war,
0: yeah, referring to butlers right. and it's just, and like, and you you know you just see Carson reacting to that, and it's brutal, yeah, because I mean, you know again. This is where, you know, his blind spot is really detrimental because he loves Mary so much. And I don't think that Mary doesn't like him or appreciate him or or anything like that. But it's a very Santa Claus type of situation. Anytime she needs something, she goes to Carson. But if he needs something from her, you know, I think all he wanted was for her to acknowledge that that was inappropriate and she understands
1: well but he didn't come in and say lady mary i've this scheming thing is happening he came in and said lady mary i'm not going to come with you when you leave down that's a fair point you know and then that's why you know and so that's she's going to be leaving her home and he was the one piece of home that Mm -hmm. she was going to be able to take with her and he's just you know he just announced that he is leaving and didn't you know suggest it or or anything Mm -hmm. else just decided on his own that this that that was the right thing to do.
0: Well, and that's fine. I mean, just my larger point is that Mary doesn't care about Carson even half as much as Carson cares about Mary.
1: It's an unequal relationship. This is true.
0: Lord Grantham comes across Jane who's in the wine closet, I think. That's yeah. what it is. It's where they prep the wine. Uh I think there's like a sideboard in there, but he asks for Carson and wants to know if he's he's done with the red wine, he got a new red wine. Jane then tells Lord Grantham that he made her sad, bringing up her dead husband like that. And uh, he tells her that he's a sad, lost man who's lost his way, and she shouldn't listen to him. Uh, then he inexplicably kisses her. Then immediately asks her forgiveness, uh, which she gives immediately. And just like her expression is like, "I just came in here because I'm an alcoholic. I just <laughs> wanted to steal some wine. Just I, you know, I won't tell if you won't. Like it's cool."
1: Yeah. No, it's just the most uncomfortable.
0: In a, in a series full of uncomfortable interpersonal interactions, this one really takes the cake. Yeah. Uh, but Jane runs downstairs in a tizzy and tells Carson that Lord Grantham is up in that wine closet. She's very frazzled. and He's like, what's the matter? And I'm like, oh, I was just about to get my 10-day chip. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Carson's very upset by her appearance. And she's all like, ah, ah, ah.
1: It's nothing. It's nothing. Just fell. That's all. <laughs> Lord Grantham is chilling with Isis somewhere, library somewhere, as Carson explains to him why he couldn't work for Sir Richard. You know, Lord Grantham is like, but the the plan was that you were going to protect Lady Mary from Sir Richard, and he's like, oh, well, I I wouldn't put it like that, but yes. (laughs) Um, And he says that he couldn't work for a man he didn't respect, which, uh...
0: You respect Lord Grantham? You should... Are you drunk?
1: (laughs) Who should, you should maybe consider.
0: Up in Mary's room, uh Mary's asking Anna why Anna didn't come to her first with this information. Anna tells her that she didn't want to add to her troubles, and Mary says, well, you have done. Which is a great phrase, which I love. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, oh, remember that time she helped you move a dead body? <laughs> like, come on. Sisters before, you know, butlers or something. <laughs> but I mean, moreover... Anna did exactly what Anna's supposed to do. Like, there's a clear chain of command, and if there's something improprietary going on, she's supposed to report it to her immediate superior.
1: I mean, I don't really fault Anna, but I I, I don't think that it's a clear-cut case that that's obviously what she should have done necessarily. Just because it did affect... Mary personally, and she is Mary's maid. And I think, you know, there's an expectation of a certain amount of a relationship. Well,
0: but the only reason Mary would have wanted her to come to her first is so that she wouldn't lose Carson.
1: Right. Yeah, it it is. Yeah, it's rough on Anna, who didn't really do anything wrong. Down in the library, Matthew is sitting in his wheelchair, and Lavinia is there. Uh, She sees a tray that was left out. And so she's going to clear it herself.
0: Which, Matthew says it's too heavy. And I'm like, what? Are your trays made of solid lead?
1: Oh uh, Well, she doesn't appear to be the strongest physical specimen. Well,
0: that's all well and good, but it's a tray, I, dude. It's a tray.
1: Well, it, it does turn out to be a problem. <laughs> As she picks it up to, to clear it away, she trips over a footstool, sending the dishes flying. And Matthew leaps up to catch her.
0: But I thought he was paralyzed.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, it's really just like I'm all in the night visitors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the theme song kicks back in as Lord Grantham tracking shots his way around the house to rally the troops and bring everyone into the library to see Matthew standing up. Lord Grantham dispatches Edith to run and get Dr. Clarkson, the Dowager Countess, and Isabel. McGee's face is elated. (laughs) She is so excited and happy, and it's not because Matthew's standing up. It's because he's going to go home.
1: (laughs) That's right. Everybody is thrilled, and you know why they're all thrilled? Because none of them are going to have to clear up those broken dishes. (laughs) (laughs) Major Clarkson has... Uh, been brought in, he explains that there's only one explanation, and it starts with a mistake on his part, that he believed that the spine was transected, and another doctor, who was apparently brought in, and who he told the family had agreed with him, in fact said that it could be a case of spinal shock, which is basically just a case where, of temporary paralysis. But he did not agree with that other doctor, and he felt that he would just be giving people false hope if he had told any of them that. But he says that since it was spinal shock, he should, you know, to take it slowly, but that he should recover and have a normal life. And Isabel is also there and is uh, crying. And
0: and we're crying and everyone's yeah. crying because Isabel's our favorite.
1: Yeah. No, she just says, you know, my dear boy. And, yeah. Oh, man, it's great. She's great. Carson wonders if everyone will stay for dinner, which uh, they will.
0: Well, and Dr. Clarkson says, you know, oh, I'm not dressed for it. Lord Grantham's like, oh, no one cares about that. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure your mom does.
1: (laughs) No one cares what you wear or who you kiss. The (laughs) war's over.
0: Downstairs, Anna runs into Bates. Who says he's got a problem? (laughs) I'm Mr. Bates. (laughs) It's my Bates impression.
1: Yeah. Well done. Uh,
0: apparently, Bates is the one who purchased arsenic for rat poison back when he was still living with Vera, and he thinks that is what Vera took to kill herself. And Anna counsels him to tell the police immediately in order to divert suspicion, because if they find out you know, later that he was the one who purchased it, it's going to
1: look suspicious. Right.
0: Uh, he's all like, I don't see what difference it makes. It makes a lot of difference. Have you ever watched a crime procedural?
1: <laughs> Sadly... Well, I mean, you could have read a crime procedure. Exactly. I'm sure there's some in that library. Uh-huh. Dowager Countess has. Anna is interrupted and told that she needs to get up and, and help.
0: Yeah, maids in the dining room are apparently a regular thing now. Yeah. So Carson's had to adapt.
1: Curse this war. At dinner, the Dowager Countess asks Sir Richard how Hexby is progressing, and he is his usual pushy self and says that, oh, he's set up the contract so that there's a fine for every day they go over. And the Dowager Countess says, does that make for a happy atmosphere? And uh, he doesn't care.
0: He really doesn't care. Yeah. Well, and he also intimates that he might want to sell Haxby Park because it might not suit them to live so close to Downton. Yes. Uh, and he pretty much flings that right at Carson, who yeah. uh, definitely picks up on it.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's kind of a bombshell, which is immediately diverted by Matthew, who has an announcement to make. He says, you all know that uh, Lavinia has been wonderful during this, what will hopefully be the most horrible time in my life, and as soon as he can walk down the aisle, they will get married. They And they would like to get married at Downton, even though apparently they should get married at her father's house.
0: But this way they uh, won't need to build another set.
1: Right. And everybody agrees that they don't want that. Um, (laughs) Well, not everybody. Lord Grantham immediately says, of course you can get married at Downton.
0: And uh, McGee's face is just like, you motherfucker
1: (laughs) yeah she's not happy mary pretends to be happy with less she's usually quite adept at pretending to be Mm -hmm. happy in these situations but this one she's
0: had a hard day man yeah like she's lost her butler and her crippled boyfriend all in one day
1: yeah like she keeps the act up but it's more clearly an act than usual yes
0: indeed yeah
1: and sybil is bummed because she's like you know what My announcement is not going to go this well.
0: Well, that... And I just think she is just sad because everybody else has something that they want to do. Yeah. And she doesn't have anything she wants to do. Yeah. Sybil then goes to see Branson in the garage and he wonders if she'll be missed. Apparently it's very late at night. And she says, you know, Matthew's announcement has everyone so uh, in a tizzy that, you know, nobody's, nobody's looking for her after dinner. Yeah. But she says that Matthew's announcement has convinced her that the war is really over and that it's time to move forward. So she will run away with Branson, and get married. Uh, and he can hardly believe it, which, you know, is fair, because this has been going on for years. Yeah. But, so, Sybil allows him to kiss her, but nothing more until everything's settled. Yes. Which, you know, good for you, Sybil. Yeah. Uh, and it's very sweet. Although, I don't really think Branson would try anything. He doesn't seem... I
1: agree. I mean, he's, you know, he's waited this long. He, well, and I
0: think part of his whole sales pitch is, you know, your parents think I'm not good enough for you, so he's right. not going to do anything. Right. To jeopardize, you know, them already hating him, but possibly right. hating him less.
1: Right. Like, you know, the fact that he's, you know, a peasant is yes. unavoidable, but yes. everything else he's going to be as as proper as possible. Sharp
0: dresser, that Branson. Oh, <laughs> well, except for the, you know, the Wizard of Oz coat, but... <laughs>
1: Up in the scandalous shared bedroom, Lord Grantham is taking off his robe and Mcgee is expressing her anger about him offering to host a wedding without even consulting her. And she says that it is going to delay Mary's wedding and that Mary is their first priority, which Lord Grantham does not agree with at all and is in fact angry that she would even suggest that Mary is their first priority. She tells her that she
0: sounds selfish and stupid for saying that. And we wholeheartedly disagree. Right. I mean, he is a real dick in this scene.
1: Yeah. Like, excuse me, I thought Mary was your darling daughter and you loved her. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, I didn't. No. You didn't think that either.
0: Well, and it's like, again, you know, Matthew doesn't need them to host this stuff. Like, he was, like, a successful solicitor. Right. Well, and I mean, you know... Even though, like, you know, the groom's family handles this stuff or whatever in, in Britain at this time, it's mm-hmm. still just insane. Yeah. Like, it's not so terrible that they want to be married at Downton or whatever, but it right. is insane that he's not putting Mary... Like, Mary needs to get married. Yeah. Like, this how has old been is she at this point? She was uh, 20, 22 in the beginning. Uh, right?
1: At the beginning of the series? Yeah. Then that would make her 29.
0: Yeah. So she's, you know... She's pushing thirty. Yeah, she needs to like get this done. Yeah, before the equipment starts uh, acting up.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: and you know, and again, there's still the specter of this whole like Pamuk thing. Yeah, floating around out there, having been recently uh, brought up by the late Mrs. Bates. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, she needs she needs to get settled, and yeah. it's it's kind of appalling to me that a parent would be so callous. And I mean, I know that he doesn't know about it right but just god your daughter's 29
1: he just he just loves matthew so much Mm -hmm. like even matthew is embarrassed by how much lord grantham loves him yeah you can see it a few times and it's like
0: and "Mm." isis is merely jealous and (laughs) probably really pissed that matthew can walk now yeah because before he could (laughs) only
1: matthew should be careful isis is a real bitch (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway
0: moving on Down in the kitchen, uh, Mrs. Patmore tells Thomas to just leave her alone about the black market already, (laughs) although she does continue to complain that she can't make a a silk purse out of a sow's ear with all the crappy goods that they're getting, although a sow's ear would be better than this brisket, which I had brisket last weekend, and it was delicious, Yeah, and I think that that is a ridiculous thing to say, especially (laughs) coming from a cook. But O'Brien starts telling Mrs. Patmore about Thomas's goods and, you know, all that, all that jazz. She's seen them. They're real. <laughs> so she says she will use his goods to make Mr. Crawley's wedding cake and feed it with brandy so it will stay good until the wedding, which it's not clear what month this is in 1919. Right. But uh, I don't see any reason to make a wedding cake that early. I mean, we talked about, you know, feeding with brandy. Will make it last longer, but it just seems like it would be awful.
1: But apparently, this is a thing in Britain. I was looking it up with a, a recipe that I, when I just Googled it for a Christmas cake uh-huh. that you make, it says make it two months in advance and regularly feed it with brandy, and that will allow it to mature.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Still a little skeptical, will but. Will it
0: make people drunk?
1: <laughs> you ask that about everything. <laughs> you're, you're just like Jane.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know we're near my 10 day chip. <laughs>
1: All right. And that brings us to a segment with somebody who never rations her insight. A segment that we call Fashion Backwards with Kelly.
0: All right. So uh, we've essentially run out of fashion <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of dealing with things that have to do with the sphere of the home, as you've all noticed. Yeah. So we are going to talk about wartime rationing, which plays a big part in this episode. Um, it got brought up previously. But rationing in Britain didn't actually start until the war was well underway, and Mm -hmm. uh, about 1918 Mm. was when the first actual rationing happened. But it was a real culture shock for Edwardian society to go from this period of relative plenty to really being deprived. Mm -hmm. Profiteering kicked in very early in the war, the first couple months, uh, prices just soared. And then the Cabinet Committee on Food Supplies stepped in, and they fixed the maximum price for foodstuffs, although the public generally agreed that those prices were still far too high. Mm. Uh, But at least, you know, again, I'm sure the black market had its own thing to say, but for legitimate retailers, you know, you knew that you weren't going to be gouged. Interestingly, prices on luxury goods actually plummeted, and Mm. the wine industry all but collapsed due to the decline in entertainment. Uh, I was reading like huh. the the price of pineapple dropped to like one shilling, huh. like yeah, and you know pineapple is relatively uh, expensive even today. Yeah, in the fall and winter of 1914, supplies of fuel and light were limited. Uh, you could only you know burn so much coal. You could only have your electricity on so many hours in the day. Mm. And Mrs. Peel, who I believe wrote a column declared that in London, the city had gone back 20 years as regards to lighting, and by the end of the war, it was almost as dark as the Middle Ages. So the Dowager Countess, presumably, was pleased uh, (laughs) with this. Blackout laws, uh, I believe the first blackout laws went into effect once German zeppelins began to sort of sporadically drop bombs on London in 1915. They don't talk about this at all in Downton Abbey, Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously it wasn't a a nationwide thing. It was very concentrated. But the Germans did, you know, kind of Pioneer air attacks on civilians, yeah, which is interesting. And of course, the blackouts is hugely associated with uh, Britain during World War II, right, right? So this is sort of the the precursor to that. There were huge coal sor- shortages. They caused a lot of strife. Uh, apparently, the coal line was just as long as the food lines. Mm. And uh, the newspapers would publish tips on how to get by on as little fuel as possible. Yeah, uh, you know, and how to cook and stay warm.
1: No, that's actually, I just remember reading I, about the British Civil War and how that was a constant refrain throughout for Parliament throughout the war was their top priority was how do we get coal to London mm-hmm. because it needs so much coal. Mm-hmm.
0: In December of 1916, they finally appointed a food controller and there was a Ministry of Food established to promote economy and to maintain the food supply of the country. But it wasn't until the Germans began U-boat warfare that the British government actually uh, started rationing. In April of 1917, 555,000 tons of shipping were lost in the submarine campaign. Mm. So, I mean, this is this is the food that they're exporting from, um, or that they're importing, rather, from America and Canada. Right. And it's, you know, just none of it's getting through. Yeah. So, the food controller... Authorized the organization of a national kitchen, which is basically a nationwide soup kitchen. So, you know, people could go and and get food uh, from the food kitchen. And the Board of Agriculture also sent instructors around the country to show people how to bottle and can fruits and vegetables so that they didn't waste as much. Mm. And uh, also the London County Council issued posters advising people to buy bread by weight rather than by the loaf. And this is here that that's what the port did. I'm not sure if the poor are buying bread by the loaf or by the weight. Presumably yeah. by the weight. That seems like it would be the, the cheaper option. Right, right. And uh, just the laws in general became much stricter. In 1914, when the war started, the Defense of the Realm Act went into effect. And the Defense of the Realm Act governed all lives in Britain during World War One. It was added to as the war progressed, uh, and it listed everything that people weren't allowed to do in the time of war. So this is just sort of... It was a living document. You know, they could, uh-huh. any, Anything that they perceived being a threat... Would be added to it. And actually, I have a copy of sort of what was covered here. No one was allowed to talk about naval or military matters in public places. No one was allowed to spread rumors about military matters. No one was allowed to buy binoculars. Hmm. No one was allowed to trespass on railway lines or bridges. No one was allowed to melt down gold or silver. No one was allowed to light bonfires or fireworks. No one was allowed to give bread to horses or chickens. No one was allowed to use invisible ink when riding abroad. No one was allowed to buy brandy or whiskey in a railway refreshment room. No one was allowed to ring church bells. The government could take over any factory or workshop. The government could try any civilian breaking these laws. The government could take over any land it wanted to. The government could censor newspapers. Mm -hmm. As the war continued and evolved, the government introduced more acts. They also introduced British summertime to give more daylight for extra work. Opening hours in pubs were cut. It used to be that you could open a pub anytime between five thirty in the morning and half past midnight, hmm. uh, and they reduced that significantly. Beer was watered down, and customers in pubs were not allowed to buy a round of drinks. Oh, <laughs> I think that's because they didn't want people getting drunk and forgetting about all of the other stuff they weren't allowed to do. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, yeah. it's not that different from, you know, the old Patriot Act, I guess. Yeah. Although yeah. this seems like it would actually affect you a lot more. Yeah. But other things, uh, that were sort of encompassed in this act, we mentioned before throwing rice at weddings became a criminal offense. Mm-hmm. The sale of luxury chocolates and sweets were stopped. The use of starch for laundering was restricted. Horses and cows and even the London pigeons were rationed. Wow. Uh, I'm not sure if there was a system set up to kill and eat the pigeons, but yeah. uh, they apparently started one. No corn was allowed for cobs, hunters, carriages, horses, and hacks, so you couldn't feed corn or to use it to make a pipe. The amount of bread or cake sold at tea shops was reduced to two ounces, I assume, per customer, mm-hmm. and it became an offense to adopt and feed stray dogs. Oh. And the government would issue uh, directives such as eat slowly, you will need less food, or keep warm, you will need less food. Uh, here understood yet no explanations were given on how to keep warm with fuel rationed and an insufficiently fattening diet. <laughs> and then in, in 1917, this is where you get the formation of food queues, where, you know, poor people would wait outside of shops for hours. And, you know, some of these people were servants for their employers right. to get as much food as they could, which was very limited. This is why they, you know, put the, the restrictions on, you know, you can only take so much. Right. So, you know, In theory, no matter what time of day you showed up, you'll still get your fair share. And then in 1918, that's when the government instituted compulsory rationing. And after February of 1918, it was impossible in London and the six home counties to buy butter, margarine or meat without ration cards. By the end of April, everyone was required to register for bacon as well. Also, in the country and the well-to-do, they were better off because they did have self-sustaining gardens and livestock. But food shortages, inflation, rationing were still a problem even after the U-boat campaign ended. Because, mm. uh, you know, I mean, that's a really long time for food not to be getting in. Right. The only upside to the rationing and the sort of uh, the, the measures that the government had to take, the malnutrition that plagued the poor during the Edwardian era had disappeared. Because the government had kind of taken over and was making sure that they were getting food. Right. And no one starved to death. Oh. Uh, which, you know, is, yeah. is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, and granted, it was, it was, you know, not civilian warfare. You know, civilians weren't being targeted in this war. Right. But it is pretty impressive that nobody starved to death because yeah. of the war.
1: Yeah.
0: So that's, uh, that's what we got on rationing. So. Okay. And it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's weird because it, I don't know. It just, it seems so callous, almost even do a rationing subplot on this show. Yeah. Considering how little most people had. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's really weird, you know, and it, it's, it's not presented as huge, you know, but the whole problem is, oh, Mrs. Patmore can't make a wedding cake. Yeah. And it's like, well, William's dead.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: let's, uh, let's you know, count our blessings and not be jerks about everything.
1: Yeah. World War I really did not affect... Downton Abbey. Yeah. No. And yeah.
0: It, it, nowhere near as much as it affected the rest of the world.
1: Like, one servant got killed. And I mean, it's, you know, people die. Like, if there hadn't been a war, probably one of them would have, you know...
0: Right. But, you know, it's just... It, it is kind of off-putting how much... Lord Grantham, in particular, in this episode, is all yeah. like, oh, woe is me. I'm like, you didn't do anything. Yeah. And maybe that's the root cause yeah of the problem but like nut up dude <laughs> yeah. like go talk to william's dad for a minute and see how see how worthless he thinks the war was yeah you know just yeah. you know be quiet yeah go sit down and shut up until you know your class has risen to the top again yeah
1: i'm really disappointed for with isis for not biting him into shape
0: <laughs> yeah i always assumed isis was a proletarian
1: <laughs> maybe that's uh it's a capitalist running dog <laughs> A car pulls up to Downton. It is the Bryants. Carson is up there to greet them, as is Mrs. Hughes, confusing people, as she would not generally be there for this sort of thing. The Granthams greet them and welcome them, and Mr. Bryant takes no time to establish himself as an asshole.
0: Yeah, he's like, we can't stay. He's like, we didn't really think we should stop here, but we have to go. We're going to stay, but we're not staying, so just, we're not staying.
1: Yeah. So, like, I told the chauffeur to stay in the car. They're like, uh, can we bring in some food? We're like, no, he's happy there. <laughs> Jeez. And Mrs. Hughes awkwardly attempts to get Mrs. Bryant alone, but fails.
0: Yeah, McGee, because she's like, oh, I can show her, you know, Major Bryant's old room. And McGee's like, no, I will do that. Me, McGee. <laughs> yeah. I show other ineffectual wives ineffectual wife things. <laughs> then we cut to mrs hughes in the game larder with ethel telling her that she couldn't manage to get the bryants alone and ethel insists that they have to see charlie it's the only way and mrs hughes just tells her that she better leave and ethel just kind of you know storms
1: off in the kitchen daisy asks mrs padmore if she can make the wedding cake Mrs. Padmore is somewhat surprised to hear this, but Daisy says that she can do it. She'll just do whatever Mrs. Padmore tells her to do.
0: Yeah, Mrs. Patmore is, like, all skeptical. I'm like, doesn't she usually just do everything you tell her to do? Yeah. At risk of a... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. But Mrs. Padmore says, all right. And then Mrs. Hughes comes in and starts telling Daisy to bring the chauffeur a sandwich and a bottle of pop, despite Mr. Bryant's specific instructions <laughs> to starve him. But as she does that... Ethel s- storms past the kitchen carrying the baby. Yeah,
0: Mr. Bryant's orders are not the only orders going uh, <laughs> to be defied here. That's right. So, it's karma. <laughs> yeah, Ethel busts into the dining room with the baby and tells the Bryant that she has their only grandson. And Bryant stands up and is an even bigger asshole than previously thought possible. It is stunning. He makes lord grantham look like father of the year
1: yeah he look he makes major bryant look like father of the year yeah. at least he was kind of classy about yeah. his and
0: he had know. that great mustache <laughs> that's right. it should be noted mr bryant does have a pretty uh banging mustache that's true but basically he wants to know if she's got any proof if she's got any letters you know he, he can't believe that his son wouldn't have taken responsibility right which come on dude this is england in the, you know, the the 19-teens.
1: In the wartime.
0: Yeah, like, come on. Yeah. Nobody's taking responsibility for shit. Yeah. So, basically, Mr. Bryant appeals to Laura Grantham and says that this is totally inappropriate. He can't believe he's going to let this woman try and, and, and oh. pull the wool over their eyes. Hold yeah. them for ransom. Yeah. So, Lord Lord Grantham just kind of says to Ethel, you know, this isn't really... And very kindly Yeah. Uh, says, you know, this isn't really doing any good. You know, you probably should just go. Yeah. So she she does and the baby starts crying.
1: I know. The baby's like, "I don't want to leave this house. This is great."
0: <laughs> I remember this from when I was a fetus. <laughs> so then Mr. Bryant says, "Oh, she's obviously trying to scam them." And he just makes everyone really uncomfortable. Mrs. Bryant, who's much nicer, yes, you know, she just inquires, "Oh, was she one of the nurses who was here?" And uh Michi reveals, "Oh, she was a housemaid," which right. is like, Urgh. yeah isabel tries to to make conversation with mrs bryant and she says oh you know my son nearly died so i understand a little and she does it in such a classy way yeah and in in such a way you know she wasn't even in on this this plan right but she's like oh i see what should what should be happening here you know they should they should help her out somehow yeah but mr bryant just stands up and says well you know there's been a, a shadow cast over this whole luncheon so we're gonna go right now yeah and as as they 're leaving, Mrs. Bryant says to uh, Isabel that he is terrified of his own grief, and that 's why he 's being such an asshole he he 's just afraid to to give in to it because he 's afraid it'll swallow him up
1: yeah which 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 we see uh, mm-hmm. in it too at one point when he says that he would have known about the baby for months before he before he was killed uh-huh. you know like the, we do see that in there
0: well and I can't remember who said this or if I saw it on a message board or something because I tried to go back and see if somebody had written to us about it. Mm -hmm. But it seems that Mr. Bryant is of a lower class than Major Bryant and that he's perhaps, you know, a self-made man in, in the line of Sir Richard Carlyle. Yeah. And that he, you know, wasn't born into privilege because he's just, Mm -hmm. he's much rougher around the edges. And I don't think that it's necessarily can be chalked up to his grief.
1: Right. No, just like the way he treats his chauffeur. And mm-hmm. like, you know, it's very important for him, to him, that his servants realize that they're below him. Yeah, yeah. Because, so he does seem insecure Whereas about... Whereas with Major
0: Bryant, he seems to have possession of more of the social graces and, and right. how to interact with the servants. Yeah. Uh, so that's just an interesting point. He sure does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you're the person who wrote and mentioned that, good for you. Because <laughs> yeah. I couldn't find any evidence evidence of it anywhere.
1: Yeah downstairs, Anna tries to console Ethel, and uh, O'Brien's very pragmatic about the whole situation. (laughs) Yeah, she's like,
0: yeah, they're not going to help you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And Carson kicks Ethel out of there rather brusquely. Well, and he's
0: really, again, very insulting, and, you know, because Bates actually sticks up for her, and he's like, Mr. Carson, she's had a hard time, and he's saying that, like, can you just, like, let her sit here for a minute and, like, decompress? And then Carson's like, oh, do you need money for the fair? to get on the bus and she's just like no yeah and it's i love carson but i hate when he intersects with this plot line because he's such a jerk
1: he is absolutely
0: he's the uppity minx in this scenario (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so in the library everyone is discussing ethel's bastard which sir richard calls it a bastard (laughs) causing lord grantham to say sir (laughs) what does he say we just said it.
1: Uh, steady on, sir. Steady
0: on, sir. The ladies have had enough shocks for one day. <laughs> because the word bastard uh, is so upsetting. And, like, I don't think any of the women really care.
1: Right. They're like, uh, but, but it is a bastard, right? Yeah. They all...
0: We're all in a group like, mm, we wasn't married. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Mary and Sir Richard are both, you know, very pragmatic about it. And everyone is shocked. Yeah. Because, you know, Mary's saying, you know. Well, Sir Richard said there's no legal reason for them to give her any support or, or acknowledge right, the child that, as their grandson. Right,
1: has he has no claim on them.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, and Mary's sympathetic because she says it is their only grandson. She can't see why they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Lavinia or somebody makes a comment about, oh, you know, poor Ethel. And Mary's like, well, she's stuck with the choices that she's made, just like all of us. And everybody's like, Mary, do you need to see a therapist? <laughs> like, keep saying these things and we don't want to hear them.
1: Nobody's feeling sorry for Mary, and so she's not gonna feel sorry for anybody else.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: That's that's her attitude. And I just <laughs> I just love it.
0: <laughs>
1: Down in the kitchen, Mrs. Padmore is taking delivery of a set of black market flour and mm-hmm. whatnot. There's some candied peel yes. um that they're excited about. They apparently can't find that. And she says that she will pay for them when she is good and ready, that being when she has cooked with them and found them to be satisfactory, which caused me to notice, which I've noticed before, that Mrs. Padmore is as haughty as anyone else in the show.
0: Oh, yeah. She, you know, she probably started out in Daisy's position, yeah. you know, and I mean, and she's a good cook. Yeah. They paid for her to get her eyes fixed. Yeah.
1: I you mean, she's,
0: she's worth having around.
1: She She's earned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Unlike Thomas, who is haughty for no reason, and it is totally obvious.
1: Right. Well, and she, because O'Brien's trying to bargain on Thomas's behalf a little bit, and she's like, "Oh, he won't mind. He knows this is just the sprat to catch the mackerel." Mm-hmm. And uh, he's he's right there.
0: Yeah. He's like, <laughs> "Stop talking about me. Like I'm not here." <laughs> Up in Matthew's room, Matthew is is saying, "You know, he should be able to walk to the library." He's getting put back in his his wheelchair, and Bates is saying, "Oh, you know, there's no rush. Take it slow." Uh, but there's a knock at the door, and the dowager countess comes in and is awesome. Yes. She, like, apologizes for being a woman who's pushed her way into his bedroom. Yeah. But she uh, she tells him that she's very pleased about his recovery and awkwardly brings up that, you know, she's excited that he'll be able to enjoy a happy married life.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Except in her version, it would be more like violence and stuff. <laughs> so she says, you know, she's, she's going to be blunt. She's going to address this head on. She says that Mary is still in love with him and he wonders if he can't love her again. He is is sort of shocked by all of this. Yes. He's very befuddled. <laughs> like Hugh Grant levels of befuddlement. <laughs> yeah. And he tells the Dowager Countess that he he admires the fact that she's speaking so forthrightly about this, but he does feel that he owes it to Lavinia to marry her because, you know, she wanted to marry him when she thought that, you know, he would he would be out of commission.
1: Yes. And she would wash him and feed him and do things that only the most devoted nurse would do. He means
0: wiping his butt.
1: That is correct. It's gross, yeah. but necessary.
0: Yeah. So basically, you know, the Dowager Countess is very awesome. And she says, you know, He's spoken like a man of honor and we will not fall out over this. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's not a request. <laughs> uh, but she, you know, mentions that, you know, marriage is a long business and you're going to be spending 40 to 50 years with this woman, so make sure you choose the right one. Right. And she leaves, and Matthew's face betrays the fact that he clearly doesn't know which one would be the right one.
1: Yeah. Well, and and she also says there's no getting out of it for our kind of people. Which is
0: great, because she's finally accepted him as a member of her her circle and, yeah. and on par with her, which is a pretty big thing of her to do.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, given her thoughts on dinner jackets... <laughs> Yikes.
1: Yeah. Down in a parlor somewhere. I think it's the drawing room. The drawing room. The
0: timeline here, I think this is supposed to be after a dinner. I don't think it's supposed to be after lunch.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Some some fancy uh, fellows editing here.
1: <laughs> yeah. The Dowager Countess and Edith are talking to Lavinia about whether her wedding will be in April or May. According to the Dowager Countess, Mary and May rue the day. Uh-huh. So it's going to be April. Because uh, nothing bad rhymes with April. <laughs> <laughs> Off in the corner, Sir Richard asks Mary when they will get married. She says, well, we can't go into competition with uh, Matthew and Lavinia. But he says, okay, how about the summer? And she says, fine. We'll do it in the end of July, and then we'll be out of England for August. And Richard says, you don't sound very excited about it. And she says, to quote you, we're not that kind of people. Or we're not like that. No, no, that's
0: nothing at all like what she says. What did she say? She says, to quote you, that's not who we are. That's not who we are.
1: I thought you loved Mary. I I didn't even be bothered to learn her witticism. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fair point. She also asked Sir Richard why he bribed Anna.
0: And, you know, I was thinking that this is a horrible time to ask him. But as he said, they're not really allowed a moment alone together. So I guess she kind of has to ask him. Yeah. You know, and we've seen plenty of other examples of people, you know, in the drawing room or wherever having these very, like, private conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Best exemplified, to my mind, in the movie Sense and Sensibility, (laughs) when Miss Dashwood is talking to Miss Steele about the dashing Edward Ferris. (laughs) Who in the uh, Masterpiece Classic version was played by one uh, Dan Stevens, who plays Matthew Crawley. So two degrees of Masterpiece Classic.
1: (laughs) Yes. And he responds to the question while Matthew is getting up out of his wheelchair. Oh my God.
0: This is the worst scene they've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah. Because he stands up by the fireplace and everybody like applauds.
0: It's like like everybody's cheering for a two-year-old, you know standing it's awful yeah it's just it's it's awkwardly filmed matthew's face is just like oh (laughs) (laughs) it's just so uncomfortable
1: yeah uh i'm
0: not saying i don't admire his miraculous i just rolled my eyes recovery (laughs) but that's a julian fellows issue not a not a matthew issue
1: yeah Uh, also at the end of the scene somebody asks about sybil who's not in the room And apparently Sybil told Anna that she is feeling well and wouldn't be down for dinner. She also said, Erin go bra. I'm not sure what
0: that
1: means. Is it Latin?
0: Back downstairs, Bates has more good news! Lies. <laughs> Bates tells Anna that Vera apparently wrote and sent a letter to a friend before she died. She she sent it the day that he went up to visit her in London, which was the day prior to her death. Or at least the, d- the day prior to her, the discovery of her body. Mm-hmm. And it's very incriminating. It says basically that she got a letter from Bates that was very angry. She never heard him so angry, although she was reading it apparently. Yeah. Maybe she reads them out loud in her Bates voice. <laughs> but she is afraid for her life. Also, the hall boy walks by. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Good job, hall boy. Polish <laughs> <right>. those shoes. <laughs> uh, then Mrs. Hughes comes down and tells Anna that she's needed upstairs.
1: Right. Because and- Anna and Bates get 45 seconds together every day. Uh huh. That's it.
0: And so Mrs. Hughes then comes up to Mr. Bates and says, he looks as if he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he says, oh no, just, just part of it. And I punch him in the face. <laughs> and I want to bring this up. It hasn't come up yet. Do you think he killed her?
1: You know, I go back and forth. Mm-hmm. I really don't have a good answer.
0: I just, well, cause I know that Julian Fellas really likes the character of Bates and I mm-hmm. think he's a bit of a Mary Sue for him. Mm-hmm. And again, it's the same issue as with Jane having this grand scheme. I just don't see Julian Fellows being good enough of a writer to pull that off. Mm. And, you know, he likes to draw things in such black and white terms, but it does look really bad.
1: It does.
0: Well, and just, it's that, and the fact that they also show that shot of her body. Right. And... I don't know what happens when you take arsenic. Right. But it's like did she did she brew it up and put it in her tea cuz it, like it looked like she was all like ready for tea and she right. was having her tea and yeah. like the cup is shattered.
1: Well, and I think I mean the one thing I'll say about it is that if Bates was to kill her, it seems to me more likely that he would kill her through violence, yeah, not through like poison. strangling her. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's it's him poisoning her is harder for me to see.
0: Well, it's like how does he if they're in such such bad relations with each other, right. I don't see them sitting down and enjoying a cup of tea together, regardless of who made it.
1: Well, it is Britain.
0: Well, true. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so if you have thoughts on whether Bates killed her or not, we would love to hear them. Because, Absolutely. Again, but I just, I can't be 100% sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Upstairs, Mary is trying to just say goodnight to Sybil, but there's no answer, and the door is locked. So
0: Anna... Pops in downstairs to try and get the duplicate keys from Mrs. Hughes. And very craftily does not say what she needs them for. She says the one of the bathroom doors had gotten locked.
1: Right. And, and so
0: she needs to get into that.
1: Yeah. As soon as Mary needed to co conspirator again, Anna was forgiven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Mary does get into Sybil's room. And she finds a letter on the mantelpiece. And she is eloped. And she is on her way to Gretna Green. Which I looked up. And it turns out that Gretna Green, when you're on the main road... From London to Edinburgh is the first village on the Scottish side of the border, and because the laws, possibly at the time, but for a few hundred years, were that in England you needed parental consent to get married, but in Scotland you did not and so Gretna Green became uh, just a mecca for weddings that people would run off there you know as soon as they got across the border, they were in gretna green they 'd get their wedding that was all legal there. Mm-hmm. So sort of like Las Vegas was, you know, for, for a time.
0: All right. I hope they had, uh, I guess they would have had Elvis impersonators. Maybe they would have had Oscar Wilde impersonators performing oh, the weddings.
1: That That is an interesting, I, I think I've just found a new line of work for myself.
0: <laughs> it's true. Uh, those of you who can't see Tom, which is all of you, he actually bears a very striking facial resemblance to Oscar Wilde. It's true. So Edith is driving Mary and Anna to find Sybil. And this puts another fun spin on the idea for uh, Made to Order. You know, perhaps if uh, Jessica Finley Brown were to have to leave yeah. for some sort of film work, you know, Edith could come in and, and be the third. And, you know, they could do all new hilarious promotional shots.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. No, and Edith is a different, you know, character. She's the yeah, stick she's, in the mud. Yeah, or, she
0: brings a whole other a whole other thing. Yeah. And, you know, they're saying, well, they couldn't get there by tomorrow, so they had to have stopped somewhere on the road. And Anna's like, uh, yeah, you hope. And uh, they ignore her because she's the help.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not, you know, if they did stop somewhere else, then they're just not going to find mm-hmm. them. So that's not very helpful, Anna, even though you're the best. Daisy is opening up the cover to check on the wedding cake. She's so excited about it. It's very cute. <laughs> So Mrs. Patmore says, "Oh, is is there's one set aside that's the one for tasting?" So they pull it down. Let's let's give it a try. Uh, they both cut off a piece and spit it out immediately. Daisy says, "I did everything you said." And Mrs. Patmore is like, "Okay, well then, let's check out these ingredients." And they're terrible. The flour is three quarters plaster dust. The the, <laughs> the candied peel were old when Adam were a boy. Which is biblically questionable because it means that God would have had to create candied peel, and I'm just not sure that he did.
0: Well, and Adam was never a boy. He was was created fully grown, and presumably without a belly button. (laughs) No, and this is really the only part of this storyline that strains credulity for me because Mm -hmm. I think Mrs. Patmore is savvy enough she would have tasted the ingredients before even attempting to... I mean, I know she didn't have to pay anything up front. Mm -hmm. I just, I find it very... And the other I thing, do, too, is I don't think a cake would have baked with that stuff. I don't know for right. sure, but, I mean, baking is a science. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of chemistry that I mean, has to go off of a hitch. You know,
1: it was a very, like, dense cake so to, w- to what extent. Right. That, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I do agree with you. I mean, I think they tried, you know, that's why there's this thing with Daisy being the one to cook it, to to cover that up a little bit. Yeah. Like, that's why Mrs. Padmore wasn't tasting it. But still, I agree with you uh-huh. that why would she well, not? Well, and
0: also... The other thing is she's not in control of the stores. Right. She is also not in charge of purchasing. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if she's buying this out of pocket or or what the deal is, but Yeah. Again, there's some 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 significant holes in this uh, little plot here. Yeah. So uh, our plucky trio of <laughs> Edith, Mary, and Anna stop at the White Swan Inn. They've seen the the Grantham's car is parked outside they they burst into a room mary and edith you. anna sensibly stays in the car yeah uh like that chauffeur <laughs> and basically they walk in and you know sybil's in bed fully clothed and branson is is sleeping on a chair yes and you know they they stand up and then branson's like how did you find us <laughs> and mary starts right in and saying okay thank god nothing's happened you need to come home Right now, Branson tries to like interrupt and be like, No, she's just trying to like get you away from me. And Mary goes, Oh, Pike down. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great because yeah. I'm normally on Mary's side of the class warfare on this show. On Branson's side. I'm sorry. I'm normally on Branson's side. Yeah. But it is so funny because he does. He just shuts up. Yeah. Because she's like, You have no idea what you're even doing. Like, uh, and basically she says, You know, it's better to do this in broad daylight than to sneak off like a thief in the night mm-hmm. and that, you know, she owes it to her parents to at least tell them what's going on. And, you know, Branson says she's just trying to get her to go, you know, to, to trick her and convince her not to marry him. But Sybil says that she's right and that he must think her very weak if he thinks that her uh, love for him is something that she can be talked out of in five minutes. Mm-hmm. Very similar to the uh, Lavinia, you must think I'm very feeble yeah. thing. So apparently yeah. Julian Fellows has a real... Uh, a real hard on for these situations where men think women suck, and they're like, <laughs> "No, I don't suck." <laughs> anyway, so Edith and Sybil leave, and Branson tells Mary that he'll bring the car back tomorrow. <laughs> he he just says, "Oh, you you really think you can you can bring her around?" And she says, "Yeah, I'm pretty confident." <laughs> and then she stops and thinks, and she's like, "Oh, do you want some money for the room since you're not?" <laughs> you know, you're not really getting to use it, but he refuses and says that he can pay his own way. She looks very confused. Like I thought we paid you in Grantham bucks.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, no, well, I mean, because Mary, like, she does, she smacks him down when he's interrupting her, but she's not particularly angry at him. No. She's, she just is trying to fix the situation. Well, and
0: I mean, and again, she doesn't take Sybil seriously. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody does in yeah. almost any sphere of her life. Yeah. You know, in nursing a little bit, but, you know, she's the baby and everybody thinks that she's just impressionable and that she's just going through a phase.
1: Yeah. Yeah. McG walks into the breakfast room. Lord Grantham is at the table. The girls have not come down yet. From their crazy night. <laughs> that's right. And McGee is apparently going to help out Isabel with her refugee uh, program, so that's apparently a real thing and not just an imaginary refugee program. Well,
0: no, I mean, they, the Dowager Countess said that it was a real program. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that she had to
0: buy Isabel's way in, but.
1: Yeah. But in any case, you know, Lord of is like, I thought the whole point of that was for you to get Isabel out of here. And she says that, oh, you know, maybe she would like she'd like to feel useful. And Lord Grantham is shocked. He's like, you haven't been useful in 30 years. <laughs> and uh, he's just generally crabby about how he wasn't affected by the war. I
0: said that he was just talking about how much the war affected him.
1: Yeah. So he's crabby. Anyway. You know McGee goes off, Carson goes off to fetch something, and well, he wants
0: to keep the breakfast warm for when the girls do finally deign to make an appearance
1: correct and then Jane pops out of the woodwork, uh by which I mean comes through a door, but <laughs> uh, and she says she wanted to catch Lord Grantham alone, and she says she should turn in her resignation. Lord Grantham refuses that you know she will not pay the price for his ungentlemanly ungentlemanly act which is i mean you know a fair point she really didn't do anything wrong and then carson makes a noise as he's returning and jane scuttles out and lord grantham stands casually reading a piece of paper and
0: whistling yeah yeah, whistling real unsuspicious like which
1: i have i would guess that he's probably holding that paper upside down
0: yeah (laughs) well and it's unclear to me if carson heard right like he definitely saw Jane hanging around again. Yeah. Which he's been noticing with alarming frequency. Right. As have the viewers at home. Yeah. And I guess, again, like, yeah, she was, like, waiting out there, but, like, she wouldn't want to, like, you know, she wouldn't want to get fired. Right. Like, I mean, if there's any scheming, she's like, uh, is there a way for me to keep my job without getting fired? Yeah. Like So, you know, I think she is just trying to make sure that she can earn some money. Yeah. In his shed, Thomas cuts open some of the bags of flour and, like, tastes them. And, yes, indeed, they are made of plaster. And he he busts up the whole joint because he's ruined. Ruined, I tells ya! (laughs) It's the equivalent of student loan debt. (laughs) And uh, the subtitles on this scene are just screaming in anger.
1: Yes, which is true. In Crawley House, Matthew and Lavinia are sitting around being bloodless and dispassionate.
0: Yes, uh, but Lavinia's getting a good leg up on being the Countess of Grantham by doing some embroidery.
1: (laughs) Yes. The, which is, needless to say, not filling Matthew with passionate attachment. <laughs> Isabel comes in, and she had come across the good luck charm, the little stuffed dog that Mary had given Matthew, uh, and asks what it is. She doesn't recognize it as one of his childhood toys, and he says, oh, it's uh, a bit of a charm that somebody gave me. And she says, oh, well, shall I put it in the barrel for the village children? He's like, no! No! <laughs> He's
0: way too attached to that thing. Like... <laughs> Yeah Well and that's the thing It's like hey You know Paging Dr. Freud But like Come on Matthew Yeah Like do you ever Have any self-awareness Whatsoever Like you just told the woman Not to get a bob haircut And it was all <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah
1: Well I think that's one theory But maybe what his motivation was Was like no I hate the village children <laughs> They laugh at me And call me wheelie <laughs>
0: Back at the Sally May Shed of Failure, uh, <laughs> O'Brien is telling Thomas that he should ask for his money back. But guess what? When you get scammed, you can't ask for your money back. <laughs> Thomas said he only ever met this guy once in a pub, and you know, he would have no idea how to find him. Right. And that he's been he starts yelling at O'Brien, saying, Oh, I've been scammed, I've been had, I've been taken for the fool that I am. And then he angrily smokes a cigarette. <laughs> she asks how much money he gave the guy, and he says he gave him every last penny and then some. Which, Which, and then some, like, right. well, then he would have to know how to contact you so he could, like, come and cut off your leg or whatever, right?
1: Right. I think you, like, just every penny you had, that's, that's fine. Maybe
0: he also gave him a blowjob. Like, this uh, is Thomas we're talking about. Yeah, it could be. The last shred of his self-respect. <laughs> anyway, so she asked Thomas what he's going to do, and he says he doesn't know. Credits!
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bit of a surprising place for them.
0: Yeah, uh, nobody this, like, really cares. Like he's not a sympathetic character. Like right. if you're gonna give me a cliffhanger? Make it? I'm like, good. He's gonna die. <laughs> Start with the Krauts. Finished. Finish with the Krauts. Started. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes.
0: So that is uh, episode seven. Things are things are humming along nicely.
1: Yes, I think we we both feel that it's it's taken a step up. The- and
0: you know, and we, I will address before we get into the Abbey Awards. We can all agree Matthew's, you know, recovery is stupid and dumb. Yeah. It is annoying that, you know, Julian Fellows felt the need to go there when the more interesting path would have been either to kill him or have him, you know, live this life and see what happens. But I think that they explain it away as well as they possibly can. Definitely way better than the whole imposter Patrick Crawley storyline. This is more plausible to me. Agreed.
1: You know, just just the sort of addition of being like, yeah, this other doctor thought it might be the case. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, okay.
0: No, and you hear about things like that happening, so. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yes. But anyway, it also gives all of us who are shipping Mary and Matthew another reason to get our knickers all in a tizzy. <laughs> so, knickers can get into a tizzy, right?
1: You bet they can.
0: <laughs> anyway, that does bring us to... The Abbey Awards. Yes. So our first uh, Abbey Award is the Gibson Girl, and this was a, it was a tough one because yeah. there were a lot of new outfits. McGee in particular had a really good episode, mm-hmm. and there's just a lot more people wearing you know shirts and skirts yeah. versus actual dresses. But we're actually going to give it to Daisy for having yeah. a new dress. She uh, she rarely wins anything. <laughs> so right. well done, Daisy. Yes.
1: Your cake may be terrible, but you look good making it. <laughs>
0: uh, next up for best evasion. Uh, I think we got to give this one to Mr. Bryant. I
1: think so. He
0: he used an unorthodox uh, method of evasion. I mean, he just yelled his way through it.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it, it got the job done. Yep,
0: he he didn't want no baby.
1: Yeah, you know, it was uh, just ostentatious, over-the-top evasion.
0: There, there's no doubt that he was evading something. <laughs> then we have Best Overbite actually goes to Mrs. Bryant. She had oh. quite a charming... Little cowed into submission type overbite. <laughs> yeah, and we felt that that shouldn't go unrecognized as we were giving her husband an award as well. Yes, uh, and then finally Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith. That's a five. That, that's a five plus.
1: That, yeah, it was. Fantastic. No,
0: she just she was back on top with the zinger. She was back into having the moral high ground. Yeah, it was everything that we want her to be. Yeah, all the time. That's right. And uh, you know, no, and just being delightfully uh, aristocratic about the chaise long. Yeah. And uh, you know,
1: we didn't even mention. I don't think one of the one of her lines when uh, after Matthew walked uh-huh. and she said, "Oh, good, all this unbridled joy has given me an appetite." Yes.
0: <laughs> No, it's it's definitely a, a fantastic episode for Maggie Smith as the Dowager Countess. So yes. please do us all a favor, Mags, and sign on for more seasons of this show. Please do. Because, because we'll have to recalibrate everything. We'll need a new Twitter handle.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just going to throw our lives into disarray. Yes,
0: and yeah. I know that your primary concern is this free podcast
1: (laughs) of which you have not heard
0: (laughs) uh anyway that is our recap of downton abbey series two episode seven we're in the home stretch that's right two more episodes to go don't forget to vote in the poll uh the polls will close on april the 30th so please be sure and vote if you've already voted Find a new computer And vote from there <laughs> Give it a shot We don't care
1: Yeah It's not It's not the tightest ship That we're running yeah, on. Yeah And we
0: figure If you want something That badly That you would go Vote for it On a different computer Then you deserve To be counted twice Agreed Anyway That's our show For today And until next time Up, up yours
1: downstairs, downstairs.
0: In your pipe and smoke it. In your pipe and smoke it.